We arrive here today to debate at social distances from each other. There's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello there, and you're very welcome to Your Politics Podcast. I'm Mary Regan, and I'll be joined by RT's political correspondent, Michal Lahan, and Sinn Féin Senator Lynn Boylan. Well, it's a new year, and while the doll's not back until next week, the Cabinet has been meeting... And for the first time in a long time, there was a glimmer of optimism that just maybe the worst of the pandemic will soon be in the past. One group of politicians that's already back in work is the members of the Oireachtas Cross-Party Committee on the Environment and Climate Action. That group of TDs and senators have been scrutinising the proposed carbon budgets. And joining us fresh from one of those meetings is Lynn Boylan of Sinn Féin. Lynn, thanks for joining us and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you too. I think Thanks for having me on. I think you're uh, joining us from West Cork where you've been working remotely and dividing your time between committee meetings and I see a little bit of cooking also. That's it, yeah. No, I mean, it's great that you're able to attend the, the committee meetings remotely um, and it, it's been a really interesting three days of, of debate around the carbon budgets, but it's also nice to be doing it from West Cork. Yeah, and I see just in there on Instagram you're uh, claiming to be bringing some Dublin culinary class to Cork. How's that going down? Yeah, I don't know. They're, they're arguing that the tripe and drachine is, is better culinary cuisine. I'm not convinced. I'll, I'll defend the coddle every day. <laughs> so. Are they impressed by your coddle? Yeah. And I saw there your boiled sausages as well. Are they... Are they nicer than they might have looked on Instagram? <laughs> they, they always are. They're, they're a matter of taste when it comes to the boiled sausages, but uh, I, I love coddle. I just think in a cold day that you can't beat it. Yeah, I can't beat it. And uh, of course, you know, you, uh, you've, you've, as well as just cooking there, you've been taking part in these uh, climate committee meetings. Can you just maybe explain to us exactly the work that the committee is undertaking this week because it's really scrutinising these uh, carbon budgets. So what exactly do you hope to achieve from these three days and what will come out of it? Well, this was the first day we were talking to the Climate Change Advisory Council themselves and this was the rationale behind the budgets that they've presented, um, why they, they have set the targets they have and why they believe that they're achievable. And I suppose that the furthest or the most ambitious that we can possibly go. Then yesterday we heard from sort of leading climate ac- academics who are arguing the case that actually, you know, the budgets aren't ambitious enough, that Ireland needs to be doing more in terms of its role internationally, its legacy in, in producing emissions. And and I think for anybody listening to, to yesterday's, it was very, very stark around, you know, when science meets politics, um, like the science won't bend. We we know that climate change is real. And, and that was, I think everybody was taken aback by the, the starkness of what was outlined to us. And then today we were listening to the stakeholders. So the Environmental Pillar, the Irish Farmers Association, Social Justice Ireland, uh, Friends of the Earth, all sort of outlining, I suppose, how we ensure that, that there's social justice and that society is is brought along on this journey. So it's, be, it's been a really, really interesting Three days. Okay, yeah, and maybe you'll explain to people what exactly the climate budget is, you know, and, you know, when we can really see it impacting on our own lives. When will all that happen? 
we're, I suppose we're two years behind, unfortunately, mm. around the process. So we've had the Climate Act that was passed um, through. It got a huge amount of scrutiny at the committee, which I think was to the benefit of, of the legislation. It's now far more robust than what was presented to the committee by, by Minister Ryan um, back in October 2020. But effectively, it sets in law that we have to meet our emissions and that those emission, our emissions reductions have to be met by, by any government, not just this government, but any future government that will bring us on a trajectory that we will be net zero by 2050. But more, I suppose more importantly for, for people's everyday lives is that we'll have, you know, that 51% reduction in emissions by 2030. Um, the reality is that in order to meet those targets, everybody is going to have to to do their bit every sector there's nobody who can who cannot do uh, their part but it is going to be a seismic change in in how we arrange our society um and i and i think there's a huge body of work to be done in engaging with communities at all levels um to explain why we have to do it but also how we can make sure that it's as fair and just as possible yeah and how how difficult will that be because you mentioned those academics who've been before the committee and they were arguing this week that the government needs to make you know far more immediate hard choices you know on areas like fossil fuels on stopping forest and peat harvesting and on cutting the national herd among other things so what was the sense of the sort of political will there to make decisions that will be hard to in some cases sell to um, sectors of the electorate? I think for me what's really critical is the fact that we've had a decade of, of not meeting any targets so under the current gov- the, the, the previous governments, we haven't met a target on, and our emissions are actually the same as what they were in 1990. And for me, there's a fear that we could get into a debate because, you know, I follow the science and I, I absolutely accept what, what the academics were telling us yesterday. But I think if we, if we get too tied up in those targets and not even do anything, I think that's a bigger problem. And that's what's happened in the last 10 years, we've talked about climate change, but we actually haven't acted and we and we have missed every single target that we have. So one of the key things for the committee around the legislation was that you would have that ratchet mechanism. So while there's lots of calls for to go more ambitious with the current budgets, I think what's really, really important is that there's no backsliding. Mm. So we have to meet the, the budgets that are set out. If we can be more ambitious as, as we move along, that's brilliant. Um, but the key thing is to start meeting our targets because we, we just haven't done that as a country. And Professor John Sweeney of Minis University before the committee was making a strong case for cutting the national herd and you know doing that in the short term. Like, What would Sinn Féin do specifically if Sinn Féin was in government now in terms of reducing that herd? Well, I think what we need to do is, is to, to engage with the agricultural sector. And I think that's engaging with farmers directly as well as with their, their representative organisations. I think agriculture has been really badly served, not just by European policies. And I've seen that when I w- was an MEP, but also with national policies. So, you know, farmers were uh, punished if they try to have any sort of land, any sort of area within their their farm that was dedicated to biodiversity, they were actually penalised financially under the European CAP project. You then had a national policy which was telling farmers go big or go broke and to borrow huge amounts of money to increase the dairy herd. So you can understand the frustration from farmers when they've been directed in a certain path and now they're being told, well, you need to reverse out of that path and, and change the way you've you know, you've set up your, your business. So I think you have to engage with farmers. I don't think it helps to, to you know, to, to be very combative with, mm. with 
any sector because you force people into corners. I'd like to sit down, you know, with farmers, but also around incentivizing them, incentivizing farmers to go into regenerative uh, farming practices, incentivize them financially into the organic sector. And one of the things with the organic sector is we, we're the low, second lowest, you know, us in Malta in terms of the percentage of organic farming we have in this country. Um, even our targets under this current government are not ambitious enough if you compare it to 25% at an EU level compared to, I think it's 8%. Um, is what they're hoping for. But in order to get farmers to, to choose that, you have to create the markets. So, for example, in Denmark, they set a, a limit and they basically told supermarkets and, and stores, you have to have a set minimum percentage of organic products. Mm. And that way then they could go to their farmers and say, we've guaranteed you now that you have a market if you choose to sort of, I suppose, take that risk and go down the, or, the organic yeah, road. Yeah, and, and, and like, I mean, I think most people will accept the need to sit down and discuss these issues with farmers and incentivize them. But really, is it fair to say then that Sinn Féin still does not have a specific figure for emission cuts in agriculture? Well, I think we've, you know, with the carbon budgets come out um, and the sectoral budgets, we have to accept. We've we've accepted the Climate Act now. Um, the budgets are going to come out. There's been an acceptance that agriculture will have a lower target than other sectors. You know, and as Professor John Sweeney pointed out, that means that other areas within society will have to do more of the heavy lifting. So we've accepted the Climate Act. Um, but what you can't do is you'll serve no purpose if you go out trying to to battle or butt heads with any any sector in society. This is about working with people. It's about bringing people along. That's what a just transition is. And, and interestingly, within the, the climate legislation, when it was presented, had no reference to a just transition. It now has a reference, but we still don't have just transition principles. And, and um, unlike if you look at Scotland, they have a just transition principles enshrined in their climate legislation so that any action that's taken has to have just just transition principles at its heart. And are all your party in agreement on this? Because Matt Carthy has been, um, you know, not speaking very favourably about, you know, cuts to the national herd. And the Taoiseach has accused Mary Lou Macdonald of trying to have an each way bet on this issue. Well, look, the, the Taoiseach, you know, <laughs> will constantly attack Sinn Féin and, and, you know, and Sinn Féin will continue to hold the government to, to account. The issue here is I think that there, there's a learning curve for everybody in terms of, of the climate uh, crisis that we're in and the emergency. And I think when you look at the, the understanding that members of the Climate Change Advisory Council have around the, the scale of the challenge that's ahead of us, um, I think that wider society and politicians, um, it's going to be difficult. This is not going to be easy to achieve. It's going to be really, really difficult. But what we need to have is to go into every community and start talking to people and making sure that they're part of the decision-making process, but also that they understand the level of change that's going to come and it's going to come within the next decade. Okay, and just in terms of, you know, your own career, because you have been very outspoken, I think from the very start of your career on on climate issues. And I suppose in some ways your story has been the Sinn Féin story, because I remember the 2014 European elections, you went from the start of that campaign to being practically anonymous, is how I think Gerry Adams described you at the time, to taking that seat uh 
for Sinn Féin in, in the Dublin constituency. That was seen as a big kind of tie-turning moment for Sinn Féin. But then, of course, you lost your seat in 2019 and what was a bad day for the party at that time. So what is next for, for yourself? Have you decided already, you know, will you be con- contesting a seat in the next general election? And uh, will that be the election that sweeps Sinn Féin into office, do you think? Well, I suppose for, for, for myself, I, I do see a future for myself in politics. If the electorates choose that I have a future in politics, that's the nature of the job. You put yourself out there and, and the electorate will decide whether or not they, they want you to, to represent them. Um, but I would like to, to contest in, in a future general election. Um, yeah. I don't think Sinn Féin is taking anything for granted. Yeah, you know, and, and had it... Had, at polls, but had, we had, all know that on the day is what matters. Have you had any discussions yet around what constituency you think you might be running in? No, I mean, I, I, I'm working out in, in Dublin Southwest. That's where my common is. That's where I'm a member of the party. Um, and I'm working as an activist like everybody mm. else, out knocking on doors and, and engaging with the public um, coming up to Christmas. Obviously, we're not knocking doors at the moment, just with the COVID measures. But, um, you know, wherever I run, that'll be decided by the membership. Yeah, they I, will be the ones who, who have to do the nomination and, and vote to accept you as a candidate. And it sounds like Dublin South West would be your preference. I think Sinn Féin got around 30% of first preference votes there and it is a five-seater. So I suppose you'd be confident really of taking two seats there possibly next time around. After 2019, I'm confident. <laughs> Never say I'm confident of taking a seat um, because I didn't see losing my seat coming. Mm. Um, so look, wherever I, I will contest... I will commit to the area and, and work hard uh, to represent people. But I'm from Tala. It's where I grew up. I suppose it's where I'm most familiar um, with the constituency and with the people in the constituency. But again, it'll be up to the members to decide okay. whether or not I'm a candidate. OK, I might just bring in Michal Ahan here um, at this point. Like Michal, uh, the polls are suggesting now that, uh, you know, Sinn Féin government is, is, is now a real possibility perhaps even a likelihood. What kind of level do you think is going off planning do you think is going on in the party now at this stage, you know, to, to, to get out all their ducks in the row ahead of, 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 of the election, uh, mm. even though it's still some way off? Well, well, judging by an interview done in the Evening Echo with Jonathan O'Brien, the former TD for Cork North Central, uh, who's involved in that process, he, he seems to be fairly extensive. He talked about things, decisions around places like Munster already being nailed down in the sense that they would have 18 candidates running there uh, and the need to be ready at all t- points for an election. Uh, so if uh, Sinn Féin know already the number of candidates in Munster, you would think in other areas as well, it couldn't be far off. So I suppose uh, that shows that the party uh, will be ready uh, fairly soon for, for that election, even if it doesn't seem uh, that there is a media prospect of one taking place. And key really would have to be vote management strategy, wouldn't it? Because there was a sense that they didn't have enough candidates uh, last time around. Yeah, clearly. And, and I suppose that you can see, judging again by 2019, the reasons for that, uh, given uh, that Sinn Féin, looking at the first preference votes, had so few candidates uh, relative to that ability to pick up more seats. So then it's a question in the five-seaters, isn't it? Do they run three candidates, not just two? Uh, is that something that you're going to see on a fairly widespread basis? And then can Sinn Féin, it's not a question anymore now for the party, clearly that that... Uh, threshold has been passed of winning two seats in a constituency. Now it's a question of in what constituencies can they win three seats if they're going to get those kind of numbers that 30 plus percent uh, could possibly yield in relation to a big, big number of TDs. 
and uh, the parties of government or the parties of the coalition will be hoping that by the time that next election comes around, the pandemic will hopefully be behind them and that there will you know, be something to offer uh, uh, the, the the public. Um, and we saw real change in, in mood, really, in, in, in Cabinet this week compared to before Christmas, didn't we? Yeah, striking change of mood. And I think Michal Martin, known for his caution, but when he did emerge from Cabinet on Wednesday and spoke about signs of hope. I mean, I think there's clear signals there and a kind of an expectation building uh, across the political system now that when it comes to next Thursday that Neffet will meet and perhaps soon after that you could have the COVID committee meeting on the Friday with a view to a fairly widespread lifting of restrictions in early February. That certainly seems to be what the mood, mood music is suggesting at the moment despite those very high case numbers. Uh, Lynn Boylan, the decisions made this week around sort of easing restrictions in relation to close contacts, in relation to PCR testing. Um, do you think that was the, the right approach? It seems to be based on not just purely public health advice, but also questions around practicality and pragmatism and all that being brought into it as well. Does Sinn Féin support that? Well, I think there's an understanding that in order to ensure that frontline services and, and manufacturing can, can continue, that there had to be some change around the isolation rules. But for us, the, the, the key is around the availability of the, the antigen testing and the FFP2 face masks and the cost uh, and who incurs that cost and the availability and accessibility of those uh, for workers. Because if we're going to be putting workers at risk by reducing those isolation measures, you know, we need the regular antigen testing. We need workers to be wearing those high quality uh, face masks, um, but they're not cheap and that cost shouldn't be borne by, by workers. Mm. And uh, Michal, just another um, item on the agenda this week has been this online safety bill. Uh, when can we see this uh, being passed through the, this, this com- coming into existence? And, you know, how big of a test really is it for, for Catherine Martin? Yeah, I think it's a big test. And Catherine Martin yesterday couldn't commit uh, to having it passed uh, by the Iraq this before the summer. But there certainly seems to be an ambition to do that. Uh, one part of it does seem fairly clear. You will have an online safety commissioner now with powers powers that could see online platforms fined up to 20 million euro if they don't take down harmful content. But I think one of the big political questions remains, what about individual complaints? Will there be some way uh, of an individual making a complaint, somebody to ensure that happens? Of course, that is significant for Ireland because Ireland wouldn't just be handling complaints from here. It will be handling them at an EU level because of so many of the big online companies having their European headquarters here. So that's the political question that will take another 90 days to answer, it seems. Catherine Martin has set up a working group to see if there's a way of ensuring that individual complaints mechanism makes its way into the legislation. If it doesn't, despite those big fines that the commissioner can impose upon those companies, it seems that it would be viewed by many as a political failing. So it's quite a challenge, quite a challenge to get it through the Oireachtas and to get that piece included in it. And something else that will be coming down the tracks is this uh, electoral commission, which will just oversee, you know, how elections are run in this country. I think we've been promised this for a very this long is something time. something that's been spoken about in here for decades and mm. many governments have committed to it. It does seem in this spring term that that piece of legislation could make its way through the House and that for the first time you would have an independent body overseeing elections and also the electoral register would be handled by that group as well. So it's a big piece of legislation which Malcolm Noonan is bringing forward. And you you think that'll happen sooner I think there does term. seem to be a commitment across the government yeah. parties for that. And I think things are at a fairly advanced level there that already uh, plans are being put in place on the ground before the legislation is passed. You're seeing that as well with the 
media commission bill where that recruitment process for the online safety commissioner is going to begin before the legislation goes through. So it does seem that there is momentum across those two areas. Okay, um, thanks for that, Michal. And Lynn Boylan, I might just discuss one other um, uh, thing with you before you leave. I mean, all of this discussion around politics really has paled in significance compared to, you know, what people, you know, across the country today are really sort of, um, you know, trying to seek the words to express, I suppose, the horror they feel around the killing of of, of uh, Ashling Murphy. My, my heart goes out to, to Ashling's family and friends and to her colleagues in the school and, and the children who seem to love her as a, as a teacher. Mm. I was listening to the principal on, on RT News today talking about how much loved she was um, in the school. It's, look, I think yesterday as the news was filtering out about what, what had happened I think it's hard to to say that most women, their heart sinks when you hear somebody who I suppose is doing, you know, everything right and that you're going out during the day, you're going in an area that's, you know, well populated and this can still happen. And it just brings all of that fear back um, that women go through in terms of going out in public and and, and their safety. And it's just, I'm heart sore for, for Ashling's family. It's just, it's horrific uh, what happened to a young woman who is in the prime of her life. And, you know, what do you think this says about, you know, a wider, maybe a, a cultural problem that is out there at this time? Um, there's been reference a lot today on social media and elsewhere about a survey in the Runners World magazine that said 60% of, of women, female runners in Ireland and Britain um, out taking exercise have been harassed at some point and 25% are regularly subjected to sexist comments and unwanted advances. How big of a problem is this and what can be done about it? It, it, it absolutely is a problem. I'm somebody who, who goes out running myself and, and I choose to go running alone because for me it's time away and, and I clear my head. Um, and I've, I've experienced it. I've experienced having to run past a group of men and having comments put at you and, and I remember tweeting about it and people were going oh but sure it's just cat calling or it's just a bit of crack and you're like but it's the fear it instills in you because you know you're on your own and you're passing a group of men and um, so it is it is it is real um, mm. and, and while we know that the vast majority of of violence against women happens by by people who are known to them you cannot deny that that it is an issue and it is an issue in Irish society and it's one that we have to grapple with and we have to stop telling women about what they need to do to make themselves safe and start talking to, to the boys and men in society about why they need to call out that behaviour when they witness it among their peers, um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and why, why is it a case that, that women don't feel safe? And in your experience that you spoke about there, is it something that you feel might be getting worse? I, I don't know I, I, whether it is or not. I mean, that, that article in The Runner's World certainly, you know, would, looks like it is becoming a, a problem. Um, but it's one of those things where I think anybody who takes exercise outdoors will, will tell you what, what they do in order to try and make them, you know, feel safer. So, like, I won't run in, in the park, the local park to me, because, you know, especially in the winter when there's just not enough people around, so I'll mm-hmm. stick to the main roads. So you're taking all of these these measures in your own head because you're aware that there's always a risk whether or not that risk is increasing I mean you'd have to have studies done to to look at it but it certainly brought it all back to anybody any woman who goes out exercising 
alone. Do you mm. mean what happened to Ashing Murphy yesterday? Just it sends a shiver through you and, and the fear brings it all back again that, uh, you know, it, it, there's nothing you can do to protect yourself. It It's not women's fault. This is an issue that we have to grapple with um, around a, a culture that's out there, unfortunately, and we need to change it. Mm. And uh, the Taoiseach has just been commenting uh uh, speaking about this, Mihol, what has the Taoiseach been saying? Yeah, the Taoiseach has just been commenting about this. In a statement, Mihol Martin said, the entire country is devastated and shocked uh, and describing uh, the killing as violent and barbaric, a young woman who was in the prime of her life. I, I'm sure uh, we'll be discussing this for, for um, some time to come. Um, but that's all we have time for for now from the Your Politics podcast. Uh, my thanks to Lynn Boylan uh, for joining us and uh, to Michal Han also. And if you like that podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. We'll speak to you next week.